1: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is journalist, historian, and author Evan Thomas. His new book, The Road to Surrender, leading up to Hiroshima in 1945, is just superb. Remember, we'll take your questions, so write into to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Pliticon for next week's show. Now we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to this week's sponsor, Real Paper, in our show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James, you and Simon Rosenberg have been lonely voices yelling, the Democrats not only are coming, they're winning everywhere. Well, more going to start to listen to you all after Ohio by a resounding double-digit margin. Last I checked, about 14 points, rejected a duplicitous Republican effort to make voter referendums much harder. Several takeaways from this, and they're really important. The context was abortion. And there's going to be a November referendum that would overturn Ohio's law, which is a ban on any abortion after six weeks, no exceptions for rape and incest. The Republicans thought they could defeat this by raising the threshold by which it had to pass. They lost. That means the post-Obs lift – again, it just signals anew – the post-Obs lift for Democrats remains powerful. An August election is never easy to organize. Take two, and sources tell me they've rarely seen a better organized democratic effort. As this just became a partisan ma- matter, now that augurs well for Sherrod Brown's critical Senate race next year. His opponent may well be the Secretary of State, the prime advocate of this failed effort. Uh, and as we spot, as we spotlight every week, this was another effort to screw the voter. Now there are thirty-six states, James, that allow voter referendums. I was mixed on on these, whether it was a great idea or not, but with Republicans radically gerrymandering legislatures and, enacting right-wing policies, this may be the only recourse. There will be other efforts in Ohio, I'm told success in Arizona, and a few other States. You're big on the new Florida chair. If so, there needs to be a huge effort in the sunshine state to overcome hurdles and get referendums on the ballot there. Cause that's the only way they're going to get some success right now.
2: Well, all right, let, let's, let's back up here and get some pr- perspective. Right, in, in Kansas, you had the referendum famous here on August 2nd, 2022, which won by 18 points, blowout. And then in, in the spring, you had the Wisconsin Supreme Court, 10 points. It was an electoral blowout in Wisconsin. Don't, don't kid yourself. And then this thing comes in a little over 14 in Ohio. But that's part of the story. The other part of the story is Democrats are winning elections, the few that they have, they're winning them all. Like Jacksonville mayor, Colorado Springs mayor, the House seats in suburban Philadelphia. It, it's a very uh, a valuable tool in its own daily coos or cost. Um, they're, they're, some, they're, they're reliable. They're left to me, but they, they're reliable. And they have an election tracker where they give you the. All these off-year elections, and then they they give you the Biden-Trump 2020 number, which a number in a vacuum is really not that useful. It's it's compared to what? The other thing that I would look at, and and I may do it this afternoon on my own, but where this thing really did well was in the suburban counties around Columbus and and Cleveland and Cincinnati to some extent. And I I know, like, I think Knox County, which – it was a pretty republican county was a kind of 50-50ness I I am dying to see how how this did in Jim Jordan's congressional district I it probably uh the the no I'm, it'd be almost hard to think they won but they they're pretty pretty good the, the big thing about what happened here moving forward to senator brown's race the, the democrats have no infrastructure in ohio because they have no money and it, it's hard to build a state party if you don't have the governorship no statewide office no 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 senators no anything other than than senator brown that's it's it, all we got but all of the, this organizing they have and all of these names and all of these committees and i mean i guarantee you this is Eighty-three percent done by, by by women in Ohio. This the kind of meticulous organizers they do. This is all going to be available uh, to Senator Brown in the fall of twenty twenty-four. So that that's a bit, you know, pe- people in Ohio tell me be a little bit cautious about extrapolating too much of this from the Senate race. But it, it's clearly a, a a good, if not definitive, indicator. And the residual organizational benefit from this, I think, is is is, is good.
1: Oh, I think it, it is unquestionably good. And Brown's opponent may well be the Secretary of State who led the effort uh, on this referendum, the unsuccessful effort uh, on this right. referendum. Right, Franklin Rose. And and I looked at uh, you know I looked at some of those counties too. I look at Delaware County, for instance, which is north of uh, uh, Columbus, and uh, it's a county that's not a swing county; it's a Republican-leaning county. I think it went fifty-eight, forty-two for this.
2: Yeah, that uh, that even go a little further out.
1: Yeah. You know, so, I, it, 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 you're, it's a, you're right. It's a it's a big deal. You can always read too much of it. You can read too much of it uh, into Kansas last year. You can read too much of it into Wisconsin. Yeah, you can read too that, much of it into right. Jacksonville. But, you know, when you read too much into a whole lot of things, you start to read not too much into them. And uh, yeah. that's what's yeah,
2: happening. I, I, you're, you're right. It, it be, but we don't read, we hadn't started, we're just starting to read something into it. I don't know how much it is, but I know when you you, and you win in elections, I mean, what you, and, and even 2022, don't kid yourself, that was a Democratic win, period, end of story. I know we lost some House seats and we didn't have a very good night in, in, in New York, California. That was a win by any any historical Way to look at it one time or another, and this is being done. I might add, with questions start to be asked: Is how tied are American elections to presidential approval and direction of the country? Because it seems like it's not as powerful. I mean, you know, in my formative years of working in politics, and your formative years of covering politics, it was gravity that you know two most important numbers and. Any off the election, anything was presidential approval and direction of the country, and they're not lining up the way they're supposed to. And it's a question that I don't know if we have to answer to, but other people can think out loud with us.
1: Right. Well, it was a good day yesterday, and um, I don't want to exaggerate it, James, but I think if I were Sherrod Brown, I would feel um, I would feel good today. I would think right. yeah, the predicate's been set uh, for it to be. Uh, uh, a, a, a better race than considered. I think earlier it was considered almost a toss-up, um, and I hate to just base it on one outcome this year. But I would. I, I think shares a slight favorite now. Okay. All right. Well, your lips, but right up. I, Moving I, I, on. Donald to- Trump. If he weren't an existential threat to American democracy, <laughs> what we've seen in the last ten days would be a farcical <laughs> joke, pathetic. <laughs> After his third indictment, he escalated his crazy demagoguery and lies. Jack Smith is a thug. Biden is a crook. Secret Service is covering up Hunter's cocaine. Fulton County DA, who's about to hand down Trump's fourth indictment, the Grand Slam of indictments this year, had an affair with a rapper. Of course, it's a lie. He has two strategies, James. One to delay until... The 2024 election so he can dismiss or pardon himself as he's going to be convicted if most and not all these cases get to trial. And two, to incite his followers. I really believe uh, he wants some violence and to try to intimidate Republicans, which he is. Uh, It's really um, uh, this is this is what Trump's doing. It's dangerous. It's awful. I hope it doesn't work. I wish I were confident. Well, he's done this all of his life. So he, he knows
2: one strategy. He, he, Trump, at, at, at a basic level, is very primitive. He has one way to fight. Now, what he'd say is I've been in 4,000 lawsuits. I've, I've opened you know, 50 criminal cases against me, and none right. of them went anywhere. It, the, 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 this is where I split. Now, I, I, I now have an important ally. I have long contended that there's no such thing as a modern Republican Party. And that efforts to chastise Republican politicians are just swatting it at, at gnats. And that it was a personality cult. And I, I see that uh, Judge J. Michael Ludick uh, has said recently that the Republican Party no longer exists. And he's exactly right. And th- there's, no, there's no sense in getting mad at Lindsey Graham. He's maybe better than most. And, of course, he's a pathetic, you know, politician, weak as he can be. But that—that that is what, to, to the extent, that I don't think there is a Republican Party, but there any remnants of it, that's what it is. It does not exist. And we've got to understand that to understand politics. And... In Trump is he thinks his a major lifetime achievement is ruining this
1: political party. I think I, it's it's weird, but that's where we are. Thank you, Judge Ludic. Yeah, yeah. Let me make two other points here, um, political points. One, I urge everyone to read Brett Stevens, New York Times column on Wednesday. He criticized yeah, Paul. I, I Paul. saw that,
2: and I didn't read it. Yeah. Tell me what All he right. said.
1: Well, I'm going to tell you cuz you 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 will read it and you will find it really really um good. He criticized Paul Ryan for saying he's opposed to Trump because Trump can't win. So he'd be for Trump, no. but Trump could win. Yeah, And no, I think as, point, Stephen, right. as, as Stephen writes, I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with whether Trump can win or not. It has to do that he would be a danger to America. And any principal, Republican or conservative, should oppose him on those grounds. I really urge everyone to read the Brett now, Stevens I'm read it. today. Now, I, usually I find him. He's a nice guy. I bet met him a couple times. It's,
2: it's not, he's not a bad guy at all. I, I find him. Kind of squishy and well, Trump's bad. But look how bad, to, you know. But but this good. I'm glad he wrote that. You're right. Yes, he, if, if he he can't, so I'm not for him because he can't win. Oh, okay. right. great, great. I mean, that's if that's he really win, uh, you'd be fine. exactly. Exactly. It, he insults, He they hate Paul Ryan. They're not gonna like you, Paul Ryan. You're a, you're the enemy. They hate you more than they hate Sherwood Brown. And these people will never ever get over it. And I bet you. I, I'll give you one more thing. I bet you, if you asked Paul Ryan who he's for, he'd say, "Well, I'm thinking about Tim
1: Scott." <laughs> That's the default mechanism now.
2: Yeah,
1: You know, I have seen a little anecdotal evidence, and I'm not just trying to, uh, you know, vindicate my prediction that Trump would uh, slip. But I have seen anecdotal evidence of a little slippage, just a little, a handful of Trump voters saying, hey, it may be time to move on. But you know what's an impediment right now, James, ironically, and a great source of strength for Trump is Ron DeSantis. Because he was long thought to be the chief challenger. But the campaigning candidate had proven so miserable that he's not going to be. But he's blocking anyone else from getting to that position. Now, I don't have any idea who the hell that would be. Uh, I'm not as high on Tim Scott as the establishment right. is. But eventually, the only way to take on or to beat Trump is to go one-on-one. Uh, that's where he may be vulnerable. And right now, Ron DeSantis uh, is the best blocking back that uh, Trump has to prevent that.
2: Well, let me say it here. I've said it before. But I want to say it again. Florida Senate will be highly competitive in 2024. Quite simply, that's going to happen. All right. Just, and the, the, the great under appreciated thing is the deterioration that's currently going on across the board in the state of florida including the deterioration of the governor's numbers and the, the splits in the Republican party uh it, it, yeah you're right it it, it, it it i think we all missed how bad desantis was yeah, I, I did i, I, I think we I, I i don't think we stopped and had, Thought about like candidate qualities, ability to do anything. It was impressive. I mean, the guy just ran, ran over everything in the state. You know, won by but nineteen or twenty points. And but but uh, this is not this is not the same as it was when DeSantis ran for reelection. He he, he not only, in you know of course it's the the, the first person to get shots always the campaign manager. I well wrote that. So they, is it not they shook up the campaign. Now they're gonna go with the Jeep. They, they got to do everything. But I don't think you gotta ask yourself: is, is Ron Sanders is he capable of being any better? Is this just who he is? Uh, I, I mean, a kind of. It, it's almost. You know, I don't mean this. Like but it's almost like he has some kind of medical condition that. that Prohibits film. I'm not being diagnosed, and people who have it is anything you can do anything about. it I, I always look at him it, I and it's, it's something not right about
1: that boy? I don't know. I know I agree with you, James. And, you know, in a big state like Florida, California, you can win a governor's race with not much retail politic. And I mean, it really doesn't much matter. Uh, But you can't run for president uh, with if you are a lousy retail politician. Maybe you're not great. Maybe you're not Bill Clinton. But, uh, you know, you have to have some talent there. And he has absolutely none. I think I quoted this before. Tom Rath in New Hampshire uh, says that uh, every time he campaigns, he loses votes. Uh, he's awkward. Uh, he's just, and um, it, it's just. I, I, I really thought that that I don't know six months ago the nominee would either be DeSantis or Trump. Uh, I, I would take DeSantis out of that equation.
2: Now. Yeah, I, 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 I like. To, I think that uh, continue to think that you a little bit. You know, a half a percent every day that she might be more right than wrong, but it could be any that any number of challenges that. That Trump is facing. But the, the big one is he keeps talking about Chris Christie being fat. And, of uh, uh, course, Christie would be the first to tell you that he's fat, you know, try to hide it. I, I, I think Trump might weigh more than Christie. I, I'd like to see them have a, a, a way off before the Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg fight. I, th- I think they could draw big ratings. He likes big ratings.
1: Man, you step huh? on the scale.
2: Yeah. I like one that. Side I think that. Man, yeah, you, could right.
1: say, you could raise a lot of money, James.
2: Uh, uh, oh shit! How much do you think in uh, huh. in, the, in the betting markets? Oh my well, god! I, t- I, I t- agree t- with you, know, you. What right? would Christie be? What a twelve-pound favorite?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I, I might I, make it more like seven or eight. Don't forget Trump's taller. Eight. But uh, well, you got to you know, get I, some
2: I, points. You got to get. You got to give You, you, you know, do. Trump. You get. You, you know. I, what? You know. We got to set a line here. Is it nine and a half pounds? I don't know. But you definitely going to have to set a line for this. you got to build some, some, some real excitement here. You know, you can have
1: prop bets over 300, under 300. Chris Christie, who's having a ball in this campaign, I, I think he would, I really think he would warm to that idea yeah. because Ooh, he knows he, what Trump's calling him and he's open right. about it. You know, let me make another point about Trump's health. Everybody talks about Biden's age and Biden's health. That's a very legitimate topic. Absolutely. But it's just as relevant for Trump. Trump is only three years younger, and he's in a lot worse shape. He's fat. He's obese. He doesn't exercise. He eats terribly. So uh, I, I think the age issue is very legitimate with Joe Biden, and I think the age and health issue is very legitimate with Donald Trump, though it hasn't gotten much resonance so far. Well, it, it,
2: you know, as we know, that, that weight can be de- longevity determinant. Right, And in order to, that voters can make a proper evaluation, I think they need to know his weight. I think but he lies legitimate.
1: about it. Well, <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> that's right.
2: But put him on a, get, get, get him a pair of boxing shorts and put him on a scale. Be, they can make scales that are, you know, when you watch them weigh in for a big fight, those scales are back to the hundredth of a
1: pound. That's not hard to do. If we could find that out. I love this one. I love this one. All All right. Here here it is. Here it is. The Chris Christie, Donald Trump way off. Uh, We're ready for it. The betting line,
2: DraftKings.
0: A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services.
1: Hey, James, we're talking on Wednesday, August the 9th. That's the anniversary of the last time an atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan, to end World War II, 1945. Our guest, Evan Thomas, one of America's great journalists, has written, I think, maybe the best book on those momentous times leading to that, on the politics in America and Japan in the summer of 1945, drawing on diaries and correspondence of the major players. The book is The Road to Surrender and Everybody out there ought to get it. Evan, uh, thank you for being with us. You know, I've read a fair amount on this because like you, my dad was in the Pacific and would have been involved presumably in any uh, Japanese invasion. Let's do this a little backwards and then get, in, then get into your fascinating narrative. There to this day is still some debate over Truman's decision to drop the bomb. You write that you are totally convinced it saved many more lives than it cost.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I had the same questions. Did we really have to drop You know, both those bombs, wasn't there a way to do a demonstration? And the more I got into it, the more I realized, no, uh, there was no choice. Why was that? Because the Japanese just were determined to fight to the bitter, bitter end. And part of that was a kind of a strange death wish. I mean, almost a suicidal thing that they went through. But part of it was not crazy because they hoped the Japanese military, the military ran the show military hoped that if they could force America to invade, they could bleed us so much. They could cause so much death and blood that we would say, okay, you know, we won't, you know, we won't occupy you. You can keep your emperor. And they also wanted to avoid war crimes trials. That was not nutty because if we had invaded, they, you know, the Japanese were waiting for us with a million men on the Southern end of, of Kyushu, that where they knew we were coming, the beaches where we were coming. They had 7,000 kamikaze planes, and it would have been a bloodbath of just amazing proportions. Uh, that's un- undeniable. There's some view of, well, we should have you know, said, okay, before we drop the bomb, you can keep the emperor. I don't think that would have worked. The emperor was a tool of the military, and the military wanted to fight. Well, and you, as you say, the context
1: in thinking about that invasion was twenty thousand Marines lost at Iwo Jima and Okinawa, which would have been kids' play compared uh, to the invasion. And, and given that context, there was was there any other real option other than using the bomb?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, we could have continued to burn them and strangle them. We we you know we burned sixty cities. We could have kept on yeah. doing that, and we could have probably. Done a blockade that would have starved them, uh, but that would have killed a lot more. You know, in, in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the death toll was appalling. It's about two hundred thousand all told. Hundred thousand quickly, hundred thousand slowly. So that's a horrific number. But if we had blockaded them, they would have starved to death at much greater numbers. Uh, their rice crop was the worst ever. They they were down to fifteen hundred calories a person. They were they were going to have massive famine. And uh, disease, we could have done that, and that would have cost the lives of millions of Japanese. And not Mm. just Japanese, but we have to remember that Asia was largely occupied by Japan, China, and Southeast Asia. And that was a brutal occupation. And Asians, Chinese, Vietnamese, were dying at the rate of about 250,000 a month. That's a minimum number. So by ending the war, we saved a lot of Asians as well. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a horribly horrible, I, I imagine what it was like for the people making these decisions. Right. There is no good choice here. You either kill a couple hundred thousand people or you lose a couple hundred or, or many more. There's just, there's no good happy ending to this story. But I, I do believe after spending a lot of time on this, that Truman and his, his guys made the right decision.
1: Well, I, I agree, and I think you make a very convincing case, uh, um, and I certainly agree with you. They did, however, delude themselves a little bit in contending the casualties would primarily be military, uh, yes. and they really weren't, were they?
3: Yes, this is really, this fascinated me because it, it really gets at how hard it is to make these decisions. So let, let's go to July 25th, 1945. That's about 10 days before the bombs fall. And that's the day that Truman makes or signs off on the decision to drop the bombs. And that's when the formal order goes out. And so Truman writes in his diary that night, he writes, I have instructed the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, and he agrees that the target will be a purely military target, that it will be aimed at soldiers and sailors, not women and children. Well, what is he thinking? Because Hiroshima was the target. The aim point of the of the bombers. It was, it was a bridge in the middle of the city. It was, it was sure to kill. Now, it did kill about ten to 20,000 soldiers, but it also killed fifty to 60,000 civilians right away. Most of them, of course, were women and children because the men were off at war. So what was Truman thinking? The answer is, honestly, I don't know. I, don't, I can't get into his head, but I, 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 I think what was going on. Part of it is just human denial. Right. Where we all practice this. Everybody does yep. this. I do it. You do it. Everybody does it. And that day, Stimson and, and Truman had been discussing what to do about Kyoto. The, the, there's a, the, everybody who's seen the movie has seen uh, General Groves. Matt Damon as General Groves. Mm-hmm. And General Groves was a hard guy. And he kept putting, he had. The, he ran the target list and he kept putting Kyoto at the top of the target list. Kyoto is the ancient cultural capital of Japan, very beautiful city. You may have been there. Mm-hmm. And Henry Stimson kept taking it off the target list. This happened three times. Finally, Stimson will goes to the president to take Kyoto off the target list. And, and Truman agrees. He takes it off the target list to spare the ancient cultural capital so that we won't look like, you know, even worse than we are. And I think that's what they were thinking about. You know, we we spared Kyoto. Now, Hiroshima, that, Hiroshima did have military bases in it. It was sort of a military target. And I think they just rationalized it. But part of it was, it was just, it's just hard to face these things. And it wasn't until they really saw, also, remember, it's a new weapon, brand new weapon. And they'd asked Oppenheimer, you know, it's a scientist. They'd asked him, how many people is it going to kill? And he had said 20,000. Well, that's a lot of people, but it's a lot less than 70,000. So they didn't actually know how many. They they weren't even sure how big the bomb was. I mean, the estimates, Oppenheimer's estimate was between 2 and 20 kilotons. Well, it, it was 12 kilotons in Hiroshima and 20 in Nagasaki. So it was bigger than they thought. So but the point is, this is a new weapon. And they don't absolutely know for sure. Now, once they find out, how bad it was. And this was very revealing to me. My, one of my heroes is Henry Stimson in this book. And uh, on the day that he shows the photographs of Hiroshima to Harry Truman, he brings him the photographs, the aerial fo- photographs. What does Hiroshima look like? It looks like the inside of an ashtray. I mean, it's just nothing left. It's just ashes. And so Truman brings, excuse me, Stimson brings those photos to Truman and Stimson has a heart attack that morning. Now he's 77 years old. You know he's an old guy, and maybe it's just coincidence. But I don't think so. I think he was right. just shocked and traumatized by what they had done. He has a he has a bigger heart attack a couple of months later when he fails to do. Uh, his plan for international arms control is rejected. He has another heart attack. A- a- Evan, he's a central figure
1: in this book, Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War. Tell us about him and, and his role, his thoughts, his conflicts uh, that summer.
3: So Stimson is a figure, uh, rigid kind of seeming Victor- Victorian, old-fashioned Victorian, always stood erect, kind of that never complain, never explain type. You know, George Bush's mother would have loved him, and he he was a stern guy, but he had a conscience. He called himself a Christian gentleman, and you know I think he was. And so he keeps a diary, and in his diary, it's inevitable that we're going to use this thing. He there's, there's no turning back. But he calls the bomb in his diary. He calls it by its code name S1. He also calls it the terrible, the awful, the diabolical. He calls it a Frankenstein monster. Uh, his aide, John McCloy, was asked, "How did How did Stimson think about the bomb?" And McCloy's answer was, "On his knees, because they were traumatized by this thing. But it didn't stop them from using it. Um, it's not, you know, they he used it, they used it. Uh, Stimson was a, sort of the chairman of the board of the Manhattan Project that built the bomb, but th- that doesn't mean they weren't traumatized by it. Right, James." So, so Evan, there was a kind of thing to
2: me There was a, a third person in the ring other than the United States and Japan, a third country, and that was the Soviet Union. That right. had to weigh on Truman's thinking, the, the, the yeah. Japanese thinking. I mean, they had to be cognizant that they had the superpower, you know, a little bit. To, uh, yeah,
3: yeah, uh, absolutely. There's, there's a whole theory. i you're probably alluding to this uh, called the, right. the revisionists. You it's know, part the of it, academics get into this stuff, and, and they say that what really, what was Truman really doing? He was trying to intimidate the Russians. That the real reason we used the bomb <coughs> was to wag our nuclear finger at the Russians because the Cold War was, you know, on the verge of beginning. <coughs> Certainly, his Secretary of State Jimmy Burns thought this way, no question. Right. Uh, Burns was a hard man, and he. He was an early Cold Warrior, and he did want to intimidate the Russians. So that's, I think, that's true, and I think Truman did too. But I don't think that was the predominant reason they used it. They, they right. did want to intimidate the Russians, but <laughs> more they wanted to end the war. Right, right. Uh, they wanted to beat the Japanese. But they were so,
2: cognizant of the Soviet.
3: Yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely. This comes up in the in their meetings. You know, comes up. Stimson says, or I, as it was, General Marshall, the stated General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, said, "Should we share the rush? Should we share the secret of the bomb with the Russians?" Absolutely not, says Burns. Burns isn't yeah. going to share anything with those Russians, and uh, and he's speaking for the president. So they reject early on reject the idea of bringing the Russians into the tent. Now, as it happens, the Russians had spies at Los Alamos and knew all about the bomb. So. They already knew what we were doing. And, and when, when the bomb goes off, Stalin makes sure they get to work fast on building their own bomb. So it's, it's not as if, it's not as if the, the United States shouldn't have been paying attention to the Russians. They should have been. But it, I, it was a bad, bad idea to try to intimidate them with a the bomb. And, you know, you can say – or you can do a what if. What if after we dropped the bomb, we had shared the secret with the Soviets? What would have happened? Would that have put us on the road to arms control? That actually is what Henry Stimson wanted to do because he thought, you know, we're going to get into a terrible arms race and somebody's going to use one of these damn things and it's going to be horrible. So let's share the secret. I, I, you know, these counterfactuals, as I call them, it's hard to know. I, I, I have my doubts, though, because the Russians, Stalin wouldn't share. and He didn't want to share anything either. He didn't. The idea of American inspectors, in Russia, I, I don't think the Russians would have gone for it. So I, I don't really think that would have worked. I, I just, I, I think we were fated to have this terrible arms race. Thank God it didn't kill us all. But I, I think we're kind of stuck with it. So my, my
2: family, like Al, a, a lot of veterans from the Pacific War grew up on on a diet. And one of the things, and I think they might have been right on this, but at the family table they talked about, Okinawa changed everything. We thought right. we were on the way to win this freaking war, yeah. and God damn. what a you know. I mean, that just <laughs> yeah. proved to us that, that that these sons of bitches were never going to quit. No. Yeah. Did Okinawa change the way Washington and, yeah. and
3: Honolulu looked looked at this? Because that was a pretty traumatic. It, it sure e- was. Event. So, well, first of all, you have Iwo Jima. Now, Iwo Jima right. is the size is one sixth the size of Nantucket. I mean, it's a spot in the ocean that costs us six. 7,000 Marines. (laughs) Then Okinawa, I think it's 12,000 Army and Marines and and sailors too. So big death tolls. And it shocked, it was shocking. Those are big numbers. And, and, And Harry Truman, when they're having a meeting on June 18th at the White House on whether to invade or not, Truman says, I do not want to have Okinawa from one end of Japan to the other. So he's highly conscious of, of what a bloodbath Okinawa was. And that's informing them. But they, they he, but Truman approves the invasion because they don't know what the hell else to do. Right. It, it, just quickly, I've, I've read
2: a fair amount. It, some people claim Iwo Jima was unnecessary. That we're going to just bypass the whole goddamn thing. Is, yeah, is there some I've,
3: truth to that? I've I've read that. they They ended up, they wanted it as a, Fairly limited purpose as a place to refueling. Where, or if you ran out, if you bomber yeah. ran out of gas, or exactly, something like exactly. It sounds like a pretty limited thing to get seven, eight thousand people killed. Uh, right. I, you know, I don't. I'm not a military historian enough to know the answer to this. I've read the right. same stuff you have that it was right. so exactly. unnecessary. So this is something in the family lore that I think
2: has been is not true, and this, this is a myth that's taken hold of America, but. I happened to be in a bookstore in Gulfport about 10 years ago, and I saw a book by a guy, a guy named Herbert Bix on Hirohito. Mm-hmm. And yep. basically the myth is that he wasn't a bad guy. He was out like, sniffing chrysanthemums and yeah. kind of writing crappy <laughs> poetry. And it, 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 Hirohito was actually not a very good guy. And he it, yeah. he, he was kind of in bed with all these yeah. you know, crazy Japanese nationalists and everything. Yeah, and yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, there's is a big that, debate. I know about Bix's book won a Pulitzer Prize because right. he argued, no, no, here Hito right. was not this chrysanthemum sniffing marine biologist. He was right. a bad dude who was in bed with the military. Right. I, I spent a lot of time on this. I, I don't. I think as usual, it's kind of this is a muddy answer. I'm Sorry, we like muddy uh, shit here. <laughs> this is muddy, but uh, but yeah, he was a chrysanthemum sniffer. He, but he also the military was telling him a lot of stuff. And there are little things like Bix signed off on the use of chemical weapons or biological weapons. Uh, the emperor did, in one case, the emperor's not opposing kamikazes. He, you know, he's on board with the military. However, he's a semi-hero in my book because at the end, he does stand up to the military. They've been jerking him around for years, and they tell him a lot every day. He's involved. He's not. He's not just out there. You know going for goldfish. He's, he's involved, right. but, and he's, they, but they're lying to him. And in June, they say, we're going to take you up to a new palace that we've built up in the mountains, the final redoubt. We have an armored train and we're going to take it. And he says, no. That's an un, unusual moment of independence from the emperor. He doesn't want to go up there. He doesn't want to be there captive, right. essentially. Right. And then, and this is the important part, uh, when we stop, drop, start dropping atom bombs, the military still wants to fight on. General Anami, who's the war minister, and a very, you know, he's like out of a book. He's a, you know, samurai. Uh, He wants to fight on, and the emperor says no, no, no. We're going to surrender. He has to do it twice. It's a, it's a. (laughs) He has to do it twice. (laughs) Uh, But he does. But but the point is, he does it. He says we're going to surrender, and that usually the emperor just sits there silently, just says nothing at all, and lets the military have its way. This time, he said no. I agree with Foreign Minister Togo. Togo's another right. kind of the Japanese hero of my book. And uh, Togo is the one guy who wants to surrender, and, and, and the emperor sides with him. That took some courage because they weren't going to assassinate the emperor, but they might make him their stooge. And indeed, on the night before the emperor surrenders, there's a coup attempt. He's hot-headed young, Anami, the guy I mentioned earlier, the war, war minister, he kills himself. He commits harry care. He puts a sword in his gut and a dagger in his neck, and he dies. But his lieutenants, they kill the head of the palace guard. When they kill his assistant, they lop his head off. And they forge orders giving them control of the palace. And they're running through the palace. What are they looking for? The emperor has just recorded... His uh, surrender speech was supposed to be played on national news the next day at noon. And these soldiers are running through. Where's the where's the record? We want to smash it. We want to break the record. So he can't give the speech. So the war will go on. Fortunately, they can't find the record because it's hidden in a room that's been reserved for ladies-in-waiting to the emperors. So they don't <laughs> find the record. And so the, the coup fizzles out. The, the leader of the coup, a young colonel, goes out and he shoots himself out in the courtyard. And... The emperor surrenders. The, the, his speech is, the speech is unbelievable. He says, well, the war is not going quite as well as expected. They've been <laughs> nuked twice in 10 days. <laughs> but he doesn't use the word surrender. They accept right. the Potsdam Declaration. You know, it, 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 the amount of denial kind of right. on both sides is, is amazing.
2: I have trouble
1: getting the Togo's and the Tojo straight, but go
3: ahead. Yeah. But Evan, <laughs> Evan, the
1: Japanese had tried themselves to develop a bomb unsuccessfully. On August the 5th or 6th, did they know, did they sense that America had a usable bomb?
3: Yes. They didn't want, again, denial. Right. Be- Precisely be- because, as you say, they had been trying to build one. They had a scientist, and he just couldn't figure it out. And They didn't really have the industrial capacity. Nobody but the United States had that. You know, we built, like, the largest factories in history in Tennessee and Washington to build this bomb. And the Japanese couldn't do that. They they got some way down the road. But the, the point is they knew enough to know that you could do such a thing, that there was mm. such a thing. So the military didn't want to hear this because it was going to screw up their plans to fight to the death. Uh, and they sent a team of scientists down to Hiroshima. They took them a couple of days to get there. But, you know, it was obvious what it was. And they— you know, then the Americans dropped a second bomb. And incredibly, Anami, the war minister, says, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole nation was to perish like a beautiful flower? And he said, let them drop a hundred more bombs. Now, partly that was bluster for his subordinates. He's kind of showing off what a tough guy he was. But but it's also, they just weren't willing to surrender. And they, they had something called the Supreme War Council. Japan was run by about six guys mostly military um they, they were divided on whether to surrender it wasn't until the emperor intervened that night and made them surrender that they came around even then it wasn't a complete surrender because they wanted to keep their emperor sovereign a deity and washington refused to go along with that so the japanese had to surrender a second time and 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 most people don't know this we were getting ready to drop a third bomb a third atom bomb this one on tokyo I know this because we know this because uh, Truman told the British, a British delegation that was seeing him on the 14th, sadly, he said, I've decided to drop a third bomb on Tokyo. They weren't going to drop it on the palace. They were going to drop it in a burned out area. Most of of Tokyo is burned out. 20 square miles were burned out. So they were going to drop it there as a kind of demonstration so the emperor could see the flash and hear the bang Mm -hmm. and maybe that would get him around. They didn't have to do that because five hours later, Truman learns that the Japanese have surrendered this time for real. And, and that's, that's the end of the war. But that, that's how close we came. You mentioned
1: several times Foreign Minister Togo. He was one of the three central figures in your book, and his diaries
3: were fascinating. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about him. He's, I, he's kind of an unlikely hero. He's, even his friends thought he was charmless. Uh, he is a doer. And guy. he wasn't—he wasn't fully Japanese, was he? No, he was Korean. That's important, yeah. actually. He was Korean yeah. heritage. He changed his name. His name was Park, but his father had bought a samurai name so they could fit in better. And this is in Japan. This is important. Uh, he was not really, you know, one of them, and that gave him a little bit of distance. He, he studied German philosophy. He liked Goethe and Schiller, and he was kind of a humanist. He didn't like the Nazis. He thought they were thugs, and he stood apart. From the militaristic clique, this was important because he had some independent judgment. Now, he's also a brave guy because in Japan, if you were against, you know, the word surrender was forbidden. You could not use the word surrender. Uh, as Carville, I'm sure you know from reading all these histories, the Japan, Japanese fought to the death. They You're right. not allowed in the military, Japanese military conduct, right. code of conduct, you're not allowed to surrender. Right. So their battalions, right. they would, you know, a battalion of 600 people would lose Five hundred and ninety, you know, and the other ten would kill themselves. Uh, you know, they just were gonna fight to the death. That was the that was the military code. And Togo was a little apart from that. He he and, and he was brave about it because they there was a chance he'd get assassinated. The Japanese right. were not you know, in the nineteen thirties, I think two or three prime min two prime ministers were assassinated by these young hotheads who were militarists. And so it was a scary thing to stand up to the militarists you, you took life into your own hands, and so uh, my man, Togo was a brave guy you know
1: uh, i 'm fascinated by one part of this of your fabulous book. Most of the central players, Stimson, General Carl Spatz, another uh, head of the American Strategic Force, another central figure, and Oppenheimer, they all went to their graves feeling a little guilt or more than a little guilt over what they had unleashed. Do you suspect they would be surprised today to see that that bomb hasn't been dropped again in more than three quarters of a century?
3: They'd be gratified. I mean, uh, you know, they feared that they'd unleash something Oppenheimer. There's that scene in the movie. I think it's a little overplayed, but he he goes to Truman and he says, I, I feel I have blood on my hands. And Truman kicks him out of the office and the movie Truman's kind of contemptuous of him, and sneers at him. I I doubt it. I doubt that's what Truman did. But I, I I do think it's true that Truman did did dismiss him, and and Truman, you know, said, "Look, it was my decision, not his." Uh, he maybe referred to him as a crybaby, uh, but but the point is that. Uh, you know, Oppenheimer was really upset by what he had done and thought that he had leashed something on the world that would be used. And I think they all feared that. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle that it hasn't been. Now, I think that's partly because it was so awful. Mm -hmm. And the movie, you know, book, John Hersey's book, Hiroshima's, you know, reached a lot of people and and people saw how horrible it was. That it, it created a taboo. I I, was, I remember reading – I wrote a book about Eisenhower, and I read the minutes of the National Security Council. And they were thinking about using an atom bomb on Korea in the Korean War. And they talked about this taboo, especially a taboo against using this horrible weapon in Asia a, another time. And that – you could feel – you could actually feel that restraining policymakers from using a weapon, that weapon, an atom bomb in Korea. They just – there was a taboo. That taboo has lasted to today. Now, I fear, I worry that, you know, people have sort of forgotten how terrible these weapons are. And you have Putin, you know, talking about tactical nuclear weapons. And uh, there's, you know, you even hear talk about a the idea of a limited nuclear exchange with China over Taiwan that's in some of these war games. Boy, I, I maybe you could have a limited nuclear exchange, but I don't want to find out. Boy, I I I sure agree, James. So so Evan, you, you brought up the scene in
2: in Oppenheimer. I, I that I, that thing left me wanting. I I didn't I, I didn't think it was kind of, I, I it wasn't very realistic. It wasn't. I didn't think that's who Truman was or who Jimmy Burns was. I mean, I, I know he's yeah, trying yeah, to recreate. I, create, was,
3: I didn't, but I, that was not a high point of that movie. I did No, think. I, I I thought I yeah I thought the movie was tried to be pretty accurate generally, right. but that scene bothered me uh, because that sneering countenance, I don't think that's the way Truman – I'm quite sure that's the way Truman, Truman was right. not. I, I just don't believe that. It, it, I, I, it, think, I, think, I do think that – I believe that Oppenheimer went to him and said, I right. feel I have blood on my hands. I do believe that Truman sat there and kind of listened to him and said, OK, yeah. see you later. Right. But I, I doubt he sneered at him.
2: But that guy didn't convince me it was Truman, and the guy didn't convince me it was Jimmy Byrne. I mean, I just, it, it looked... They, they were actors playing themselves. Wasn't yeah, that Gary yeah, Oldman? Yeah.
3: That yeah, was Gary was. Oldman playing so, Gary Oldman. It was.
2: Before I let you go, my favorite thing is, of course, I was born, we all internalized history. I was born October 25th, 1944, a date you know something about. And yeah, just tell I'll our listeners about the about the USS Johnston, which I think is yeah. maybe
3: the most glorious ship in yeah. the history of the United States. Me maybe. too.
2: Yeah, tell, tell uh, us about
3: the Johnston. Yeah, the Johnston. It was it was commanded by a Cherokee Indian. Really unusual. A Cherokee Indian graduating from the Naval Academy in the 1930s. I mean, there were maybe one or two of them. Right. right? His. Uh, 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 Ernie Evans was his name he 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 <laughs> when the Japanese fleet appeared on the horizon on that morning and he's in his destroyer, what does he do? He steers straight for him and he's this is a, a destroyer taking on the largest battleship in the world ever built the Amato and they launch these torpedoes they actually blow the bow off of a cruiser and then they get involved in a hour and a half running gun battle with pretty much the entire (laughs) Japanese fleet. And they eventually get sunk, but they stay alive for a long time. And Evans dies. Uh, Last scene, the bridge has been blown up. He's steering the ship from the fantail, from the stern of the ship, yelling instructions to turn to his men who are pulling on the rudder cables i mean this is just you know <laughs> it's like 18th century warfare and he he dies nobody ever sees I mean, the men go in the water a lot of them you know they're sharks the u.s navy forgets about them for uh, a couple of days uh, god it's just an unbelievable story of heroism right and uh Somebody should do a movie about that, right?
2: Didn't he get to Melavon?
3: Was well, he posthumously
2: governor Melavon for this? Yeah, Melavon. I think yeah, I was. Just Boy, was just if one ever of a guy deserved it. <laughs> You wrote that in the book. And it, I was just so so moved by the story and the heroism. Me too. I mean, it was just a little bitty shitty destroyer. that wasn't even designed for ship-to-ship
3: combat, honestly. Yeah, but this before. guy had no doubt. There's a. I, I interviewed a guy who was in an anti-aircraft <laughs> a, a, a gun right below the bridge. And the ship starts to turn and he thinks, great, we're getting out of here. Because they can see the Japanese fleet on their eyes, great, we're getting out of here. And the ship's keeps turning until it's heading right for them. And the kid, this is a young man, he thinks I'm going to die. Now he right. lived, he survived. What
2: right. what a. What a- contribution you've made and it's just such a fascinating part of history I mean we still <laughs> we're going to live with it for, you know for, well, I, and I ever would just and tell ever.
1: everybody out there uh go go read go buy first and then read road to surrender it is the best account I've ever read on those <laughs> Uh, incredible months uh, leading up to August 6th. Evan, thank you so much for being with us. You have done You're an best. incredible job. You're the
3: best, thank you, James. Man. Congratulations. I'll really come down it. and see us at Walter's right. book party. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> see yeah. you later. Thank you, that. Evan. Yeah, good deal. See, All see right, you guys. Man. All right.
1: Now, for the outrage of the week, James Jack Goldsmith, a Harvard and Hoover Institute law professor, a conservative who presents as reasonable, wrote a New York Times editorial assailing Jack Smith's indictment of Donald Trump for trying to overturn a legitimate election um, and including inciting a violent mob. Goldsmith's charge, and he is a really high-powered figure in the legal world, his charge comes straight from the Trump playbook. A, he says it looks political. Biden, it looks like Biden is trying to smear his likely opponent. B, he contrasts what's happening to Trump with the, uh, with, uh, with, with the specious charges of Russia's ties to the 2016 campaign, 2016 campaign, ignoring the certifiable reality. Check the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mr. Goldsmith. That Russia sought to help Trump in that election, including some very sleazy direct connections. And then he had the what about Hunter Biden getting off easy. As conservative former federal judge J. Michael Ludig notes, Trump has committed one of the gravest offenses against the United States. And it's, quote, downright silly, end quote, to compare it to whatever Hunter Biden did. James, I am sure that Goldsmith would dismiss criticism from hacks like us, even given your distinguished LSU law degree. So let's turn to the aforementioned Judge Ludig. He's got better conservative credentials than Goldsmith, more experienced in the executive and judicial branches, and he's more respected. He notes that Goldsmith is making a partisan political pitch, which, quote, misses the case for the nation, which is imperative for the prosecution and trial of the former President this would make without that, it would make a mockery of America, the Constitution, and the rule of law. That's what this is about, James, the rule of law, not partisan politics well i I did read that,
2: and I, I got to tell you I had the same reaction you did, and that there's no penalty for letting a a, a the, the former president of the United States run wild on 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 a crime spree a lifelong crime spree. I, I mean, that's that that's insane. That, that I mean, that thinking—I don't know why. The, you know, the Times doesn't—I'm fine with them publishing different opinions, and they should, and uh, I, I defend them for that. But, but this was so fucking vapid and stupid, and made no sense. I, I, they should have given him another form to do it. I mean, my God, there's no—so you tell a third grader you can't cheat on a math test, and the, the president of the United States is— on a crime-free cheating and lying at every point, and there's no there's no consequence to it. It's vapid and it's stupid. Uh, well, my outrage is it's not so much outrage. I, I like to, I read Puck. You know, it's very coastal and it's snarky, but it, it's it's fun. And William D. Cohen, who's a good financial journalist, by the way, I read some of the books he wrote on financial crisis. Went to the Hamptons and saw David Rubenstein, who is the icon of icons. And Rubenstein, he writes a story, and in, in, in actually Steve Schwartzman is a big hedge fund, I don't know, trillionaire, talked about, well, maybe what Biden should do is get Trump to ask him for a pardon and make him pay a big fine and try to talk to people down in Fulton and you know, blah, blah, and the interest of the country. Well, I tell you this, we've been talking about this for the past six months on this show. I mean, we didn't talk about it in the Hamptons, all right? And our, not, Zoom Sunday, right. our Zoom calls on Sunday. Our Zoom calls on Sunday. God this damn, is like, James. Yeah, we'll never shit, get to the Hamptons. That, 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll never be David Rubenstein and, and Steve <laughs> But when I read it, I went, well, holy shit, Al and I have been like, and we've been gaming it out. Now, the, the one thing that they added that, you know, said, well, and then Biden could say he's not going to run. Well, all right, come on. I don't I, I, views whether Biden should run or not, but uh, that that's so, so Wall Streety, if you will. But it was almost when you read it, it's exactly the same shit we've been saying for every Sunday for six <laughs> months. Is you know how do you, how do you what would you do if you were Biden and this happened? By the way, I, that scenario, I don't know, it, it it doesn't get any less likely. I mean, it's just. I, the country's got to—I I don't agree with Jack Goldsmith at all. And but we got a lot to deal with here. Yes. And letting him go is not one of them at all. I mean, that's got to be. But it's going to take some. It's going to take some ability to land this airplane. <laughs>
1: No, you're, you're right. Look, this is a dangerous uh, trail Dude. we're on. There's no question about that. There are real dangers and downsides to what we're doing. It would be far greater dangers and downsides not to do what Jack Smith is doing. Oh, and I think the one hard, thing I would add, I think we've agreed with any possible pardon has to involve an admission of guilt. Without oh. an admission of guilt, you wouldn't even consider a pardon. And, and, and I, that's going to be tough for Donald Trump. It, it, it and what, what I'd do, if 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 it
2: was me, I would order, like, I don't know, Pricewaterhouse, I don't know, international, buddies, you know, international accounting firms, I'm sure they're all thieves, but have one of them do a complete audit and make him pay two-thirds of his net worth. Yep. No, don't take yep. his word for shit. But yep. what's Mars? I don't know. One of these, there's some, you know, some forensic accountants and that do all this. And I would and, and and he has to turn everything over and and he sees two thirds of all of his assets. I don't know why I leave him with a third, he doesn't deserve that, but it's uh, a, a convenient number. You're being generous.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, right. All right. Uh, you know, we'll never get to the Hamptons, but we were there first.
2: No, we we're not going to get there, but I just when I read it, said if I asked our listeners to read it, and it's just exactly the same shit you've been hearing on this show forever. you <laughs> give me a
1: choice between working with you and our podcast uh, and our wonderful <laughs> Zoom call and signing the Hamptons? I'll take the former yeah, any day of know. the week. <laughs> Okay, now we go to our listener questions, which are one of our favorites always. James, the first comes from Melvin in San Jose, California, who says, In 48, Harry Truman was believed to be unelectable. Even his own people were convinced he was going to lose. So he decided the best strategy was to go directly to the people of the country in person and speak plainly and directly about his voting record and tell them if they voted for him, they were voting for themselves. Truman went everywhere. Can we expect that from Biden? I, I think that that's what they are are, are trying to do.
2: I mean, sort of their their options are a little bit uh, fewer than what Truman had. And, you know, Dewey was a good follower at a different time. But the one thing that would give Democrats some hope is, is you know, we talked about in the show, the president's approval and direction of a country doesn't seem to be the determinative fact in these elections. And you know i i I don't know but what people are scared of is that the biden numbers just don't get any better and yeah somehow i don't know how it's hard to see how they would get a credible candidate up between now and uh next summer but if they did it would be troubling but I I, I I it's a it's a good point i think they're really trying to do this they're trying to push him out more because of course he's, he's kind of limited in what he can do i mean his schedule has got to be very limited for sure so uh, I, they're trying to I'll, I'll give them credit they, they, they're trying to push his accomplishments
1: no, when they're going to go, they say they can go every week to some community and talk about some new infrastructure projects, some they new can. manufacturing project, some clean energy thing. So they have the material out there and, you know, uh, presumably or is to be hoped for that Biden has the energy to pull that off. Right. Um, right. Probably- I'm, I'm so Jeffrey in Seattle, Washington says, Do you envision a scenario where all living former presidents and vice presidents, Democrats, and more importantly, Republicans, would do a video together urging all citizens to vote against Trump because of his threat to the democratic foundations of the country? Uh, no, uh, Jeffrey, I don't think that's going to happen. I think George W. Bush feels that way. I doubt he would participate in a video. Certainly, Sarah Palin uh, wouldn't um but i i tell you what i did i tell you what i do uh, advocate and i because i think there's going to be hundreds and thousands of thousands of former officials former justice department officials former defense officials saying that trump is a threat what i'd like to see is jim just a handful of people at the very top of the trump administration jim james mattis rex tillerson uh john kelly h.r mcmaster put out something that not not opposing Trump, but to say that he is a national security threat to America, that they would worry about the safety of the country and the world if he were if he were elected, because they have dealt with him and he's unqualified. James, I don't know if that would make a difference, but it strikes me that that would be uh, I, I can't think of anything better. Well,
2: first of all, I don't know if I agree with your, uh, President George W. Bush. I, 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 I won't kind of think he would do something like this. I mean, I I do know that like he detests him at a level you can't yeah. imagine, and uh, I I don't get Rex Tillerson. I I, I honestly guy, I never saw a man lose so much. You know, he was a CEO, of fucking Exxon. That's a, in Dallas, Texas. That's as big as you can be. He was big in a Boy Scouts. He was everything, right. and Trump just humiliated him. I mean. fired him from the toilet seat and at every juncture and the guy just sits there and plays gin rummy at the dallas country club i mean goddamn man go open your mouth and tell people what a staggering threat you called him a fucking moron and you were right and you know tell us why Mm -hmm. and that that would go to you know general kelly the one that told General Kelly that I don't see what these soldiers were doing, you know, coming over here fighting. They were all losers. I mean, come on. you—you are are you, Of course you told Jeffrey Goldberg that. Tell us more. I mean, I don't know if it'd do any good because, you know, when you, you look at these Trump people in the interview, I'd like to know what percent of the people at a Trump rally. I'd love for somebody to take a poll question. If Trump was sentenced to a year in jail and you could, would you take his place? And I bet you you would get a lot more people agreeing to that than
1: you think. I think these stupid people, if they could, would go to jail for him. I really do. uh. Bill in Havertown, Pennsylvania, James, says the youth vote turnout is going to be low no matter who's running. Uh, They need to be instructed in the importance of voting. What do you do? Uh.
2: Look, the, the most disturbing thing to me is, okay, the Biden's approval is 41 and a half. That's not very good. That's disturbing. The really disturbing thing, and it's true of any poll you look at internally, our number among blacks is not, is very lukewarm, and our number among, and I'm talking about Biden's number among under 30 is very lukewarm. Now, people will say, well, <clears throat> you're going to win. You're going to win. You know, you're not going to lose blacks. So you're going to get well. Over- yes, but it's all about, and it'll take 30 seconds to explain this it's all about share. And if you don't have a robust share uh, 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 among black voters, something 12 is fa- fairly ideal. Obama got 13. That's pretty hard to duplicate. But if you fall lower than that, you, you, the, the share is going to go somewhere vote. else. Yeah, a share of the overall vote. And it's not just – if the black share is 11, that don't mean you're just getting 1% less of a, of a constituent that you get 93% of. Somebody else is getting more. Right. And the same right, thing right, with young right. voters. And I, I don't. I, I think it's like under 30, 17%. But I, I don't hold me to that. It's, right, it, it's right. in the back of my mind. But if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, that's how you're going to lose. And yeah. with right now – you know, they can't stand Trump and they're not Republicans, but they're not very excited about voting Democratic either. And that's not
1: a good sign. No, no, it sure is not. Um, Jeremy in Clarksville, Arkansas says, explain what happens if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president but has, convicted, has been convicted by one of these charges. Does he stay the nominee or does it go to someone else? And what if he is the nominee, but the Republican convention hasn't made their choice yet? Can they go against the voters? It is entirely up to the Republican National Committee. And there's two points I would make. Number one, by all accounts, Trump has taken over and dominates the Republican National Committee, which has a weak chairperson. So my guess is that Donald Trump, no matter whether he's convicted or not, uh, if uh, he's got the necessary votes, uh, he's going to be the nominee.
2: Yeah, I, There's no Republican Party. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. idea that There's some, you know, chamber of commerce guys and everything, and they're going down to the country club and, you know, scratching out plans. And no. And he's in complete control, and they can't bow it. They can't win an election without him. So let's just assume that he's convicted. Even he's in jail. That, that, that's going to make it even harder to get rid of him.
1: Right. Not right, easier. Hard. Right. Right. And, and
2: right. We, we just got to. It's hard to like be, you know, almost seventy nine, and have to come with the grips that something that you've known all of your life no longer exists. That would be the Republican Party. But it no longer exists. It's over. You're right, Judge Ludic. It does not exist anymore. And right. they, they their personality cult, and they're not going to change. James,
1: Linda in Louisville, Kentucky, uh-huh. via New Orleans, uh-huh. asked, why aren't we being reminded of the disaster Trump was in handling the decade's biggest crisis, the COVID crisis? Will we see commercials of his incompetence you know, perhaps his primary opponents will remind everyone. I think probably not, Linda. But he—he he was a disaster. His own um, his own top expert on this said he probably cost a couple hundred thousand lives, and yet it seems to so have disappeared. James. Well, first of all. I- can't wait! I'm coming up to Louisville uh,
2: doing a fundraiser for Governor Brashear, on 22nd of August, and uh, I, I love Louisville. It's one of my favorite places. It reminds me a lot of New Orleans. You know, they have the fleur de lis, the same same symbol we do. So, I, I'm, I'm looking uh, forward to that. Uh, what was the question? I did The question was COVID. Uh,
1: okay. Trump's
2: disastrous performance. All right. Uh, all right on covid you gotta understand republican voters oh DeSantis is attacking him for doing too much yeah how how you it's not going to help you with republican voters saying uh, 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 boy he he didn't take this i mean it's going to help you if it, he didn't take covid seriously that's what they want to hear. remember he told Bob Woodward on fucking tape. At the beginning of this, I'm playing this down. The yeah. death rate in the United States was one of the highest in, of, of all of the uh, industrialized, advanced nations in the world. I had over a million people die, and forty percent of the country said, "Oh, it wasn't that much. They overboarded it. it." That's how that's what that's how nuts the country is. It's a, it's a point, but th- they can't run on that because the is not being done very successfully, but. Remember when Trump went to North Alabama and told those people to get vaccinated?
1: They really booed him. Right.
2: All right. They, they don't want to hear that shit. It was right. all made up and Dr. Fauci and, uh, you know, international quartet, whatever. It's all so fucking insane and depressing and, and everything. And you know what? They're not going to get better because they. Walla, and they relish their own goddamn ignorance and stupidity. I'm sorry, but that's it. But thank you for the question. But they, they that's not what's going on.
1: I, 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 I agree, James. Sadly, Cindy yeah. in, Berwick, in Berwick, Pennsylvania, oh, says, it's, it, says yeah. it seems strange that Mark Meadows, uh, so far, seems to come out clean in all this, <laughs> uh, and he's been very quiet. Do you think he's talking to the higher ups? I do. Mm. I don't know anything, but I do. Uh, I suspect Mm. that Mark Meadows may be Jack Smith's uh, best secret witness. Um, If that's right, I think Mark Meadows knows everything. Uh, You Mm -hmm. saw when his aide, Cassidy Hutchison, testified before the January 6th committee, and I think she knew a lot, but Meadows knows a lot more. It was very revealing. And if Mark Meadows has turned, Two things. I'm looking forward, A, to what he says. I'm looking forward to how Trump now describes his former chief of staff and chief confidant. You know, in the history of crime
2: literature, one of the most famous titles ever was a Sherlock Holmes book called The Dog That Didn't Bark. Yep, yep. Okay. <laughs> this dog is not barking. I wonder why, because that's, that's not the normal instinct. And I, I guess it was Michael Cohen, but it's hard for me to see <clears throat> how he does. He's not government evidence. It just really is. I mean, he hadn't said a word, he hadn't been subpoenaed, he hadn't been mentioned. He's not co conspirator number six or any of that stuff. I mean, about every tell that that you can imagine is flashing, this guy is going to show up on the witness stand. I, yeah. I, but maybe there's there's another explanation. But I thought, I mean, this is this dog is not barking, and that's very
1: significant. I agree. Finally, Elizabeth in Embryville, Pennsylvania. We're a big Keystone State um, questions right. today. She uh, she said we we can't convince Biden to step aside for a younger candidate. So rather than sitting around worrying about the end of our democracy, I think we should devise a plan to decrease to decrease the chances of that happening. So, James, she's going back to the second of your worries, which is why is black voter enthusiasm down and what can we do to change it?
2: Thank you. That's the money question. The answer is I don't know. But no one – and you're doing something that I cannot get people to do is ask the question – yeah, right. Why we don't have a large research project commissioned to find out some in-depth attitudes, and I, I think a lot of our problem, my guess is, I would really look at, at, at blacks under 40, but we're not connecting. They're not connecting with us. And, and Biden, by the way, is, I, I think, hands down, the best president of black America I ever had that Clearly Just look at the believe. numbers. Look at the, look at look at at the jobs and I mean, everything right, else. Right, income. I mean, I can't tell you, but inspirationally in terms of identity, but the, the points of black America under Biden significantly better than was under Obama than yeah. anybody. No one. The, the differential in employment rate is down to, to you know, numbers that you wouldn't believe. There's still more whites employed, but not nearly like it used to be. And, you know, hourly workers, which are a huge number of, of, of blacks in the United States, they've had – the appointments have been, you know, staggering. So I, but but we're not. It's not connecting. The, the the two we, have, we haven't we haven't put them together. And thank you, but you, you, at least you're thinking about it and noticing it. I don't see other people
1: thinking about it or noticing this. I really don't. I raised it with a top White House person who I saw at, at an event and the answer basically was, Look, we're doing great. We're beating you know, we're getting eighty percent of the black vote or whatever 90%. That's irrelevant. I mean if you get if you get ninety percent of eleven percent, that ain't the same as getting eighty nine percent of fourteen percent. I mean it's no, just, and it's also it's just, the, uh, that that you
2: know, the, the share goes from that, that that that's that's just that stupid antiquated thinking. It is a problem. It is a problem, and it's all across the board a problem, and it's being masked by the fact that we're we doing to, you know, really well in these elections, but uh, – and plus, it's the most important voting constitution in the Democratic Party, and for some reason, we're not exciting them, and we ought to find out why.
1: James, before we go, I want to just report to you the news that just came in, that Dylan Cruz for the Fredericksburg Nationals today hit a Grand Slam home run. Oh, my goodness. That's the future. (laughs) I hope, man. We need a future. You know, we, we hit one in Fredericksburg. I believe so. It, it's a grand slam, and it says FXBG Nats. That looks like Fredericksburg to me. No, it's, anyway. got, it's got to be.
2: I, yeah, I wonder what Skeynes and uh, all these uh, young people we saw in the College World Series, uh, uh, Rhett Lauder, you got. Uh, and, and watch us, uh, this guy from Florida, man. <laughs> He's good, <Yeah>. too. <laughs> a lot of good young Wyatt, people. but something like. Listen,
1: we love those, we love those, yeah, uh, those, great letters, questions those emails, today. the great questions. If we didn't get to yours today, because we can't get to all of them, please send it in again next week. So thank you for the, for the questions. Uh, we love them and keep them coming. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to this week's sponsor, Real Paper, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting them, because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel, or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. Remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.